The Pathfinder Podcast is presented to you by Ansarado. Ansarado is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A, capital raising, divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Since 2005, Ansarado has been trusted in over 24,000 transactions and powered over $1 trillion worth of deals. Ansarado is a secure space that includes workflow tools, AI-powered data rooms, built-in question and answer and integration frameworks. It's the data room trusted by modern dealmakers. You can start for free today at Ansarada.com. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me, Ansarada.com for your next winning outcome. Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada. Now here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Today, I'm joined by the CEO of the pharmaceutical segment at Cardinal Health, Victor Crawford. Victor is a trailblazing executive who came to Cardinal Health with a wide range of experience at some of the world's most respected companies, from Marriott International to Aramark to PepsiCo and now Cardinal Health. Victor has had a groundbreaking and inspirational career as he joins me now to talk all about his journey, the paths he's forged, and why sometimes when it comes to fostering change and creating an everlasting impact, we should be approaching the details in a methodical manner. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarado. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Today, I'm joined by the CEO of the pharmaceutical segment at Cardinal Health, Victor Crawford. Victor is a trailblazing executive who came to Cardinal Health with a wide range of experience at some of the world's most respected companies. From Marriott International to Aramark to PepsiCo and now Cardinal Health, Victor has had a groundbreaking and inspirational career, and he joins me now to talk all about his journey, the paths he's forged, and why sometimes when it comes to fostering change and creating an everlasting impact, we should be approaching the details in a methodical manner. Welcome, Victor Crawford. How are you doing? So, honey, it's always good to see you, my brother. Uh, it is just great to be here today, and I'm glad to be able to have a chat with you. Well, it, it's kind of amazing because like, just the fact of, of your background and where you sit today in the corporate ecosystem and where you've, where you've come from, you know, it just speaks volumes about your effort, but also it speaks volumes in terms of your talent and how you've been able to navigate so many different parts of your amazing career. And, and so you've gained this invaluable knowledge at, at some of the top companies, you know, beginning at the hotel industry and going into healthcare. What impact did your upbringing have on the choices that, you, you know, you made along your career? Yeah, no, I, I think, thank you for that question, because, you know, I, I think it does all start with what your upbringing is all about. Had a really solid foundation. I am um, blessed to have parents that really invested in me and my, my, my siblings. And my dad's from West Point, Mississippi, um, you know, in the Army, worked at GM for 35 years. My mom from Beckley, West Virginia, they met out in you know, San Diego when he was coming out the Marines. And they moved to Detroit because of the automotive industry. But between both of them, you know, what they taught me was the willingness to put in the work as a kid. And, you know, like yourself who played sports all your life, it was a big part of my life as well. But my parents utilized, you know, education to motivate me to be able to play sports. So if I came home with a C on my report card, <laughs> I couldn't play the next season. So I could get through football season, but if I had a C, I had to sit out basketball season and then I got ready for baseball season. So 
you know, I, I think that has really stuck with me, just looking at the hard work they put in as two individuals from two really different backgrounds that have come together, you know, had a family. So it's all about hard work, grit, and just really being able to get up every day and put one foot in front of the other. No, I definitely had some of those same moments when I came home and if I had the wrong grade, I wasn't playing. So I made sure that I had the right grades. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, you walk in, walk into the house and all of a sudden you say to your, your mom, you say to your dad, say, hey, you know, I came home with a C plus. Well, I guess you're going to have to see that seat and not, you know, not be able to be on the field. And, and nobody wants that. And I think that a, a lot of people don't realize the power of sports and how that hunger to be able to compete on the field actually drives your motivation off the field as well. Were there were there some big shining moments in your experiences, especially in your early career, that really set you on your professional journey? And maybe you could relate it back to like a moment, maybe in sports, where you know you didn't necessarily get to play, but you learned something really impactful that translated to later on in your career. Yeah. So you know, having over forty years' experience, there's been a lot of um, life journeys along the way, but I, I would share with you, I, I can go back to a practice that I had back in Boston college and I, it was my senior year, you know, I'm starting, I got scouts looking at me and I was probably goofing off a little bit at practice, to be honest. And my physician coach, Pete Carmichael, who was like a second dad to me and, you know, he's, he's no longer with us, but, um, he was, he was an inspirational figure in my life. And I remember our head coach going over to him and he said, would you tell Joe DiMaggio to get his, you know, what together? <laughs> I didn't realize they were talking about me, but I wore the number five and that was mm -hmm. Joe DiMaggio's number. Mm -hmm. And my coach came over and he got in my, he got in my grill. <laughs> and after practice, I, I went into his office. We had a talk because I, I was the senior, I was captain on the, you know, on the defensive backs. And he said, look, Vic, he says, you're a hell of an athlete, you're a hell of a student. I think whatever you want to do in life, you're going to be able to accomplish. But he said, I need you to be more even keeled. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't need your highs to be too high. Mm -hmm. I don't need your lows to be too low. Mm -hmm. And that's always stuck with me in terms of how I actually approach leadership today because, you know, there are days where people are going to bring good news to me and there are days that people are going to bring bad news to me. And the way you react to them is critically important in terms of how you build the transparency of communication as a leader. And so that, that particular moment has stuck with me to this day. Mm. Yeah, even keeled is, is something that's not many people have that ability you know, because you're so emotionally driven by what people say to you that you feel as though you have to make a res response. But to be able to have that even keeled nature kind of puts you on a a different course. And, you know, I, I admire that in some people because the fact that sometimes, you know, the emotions get the best of you. So, I mean, so, I mean, just kind of walk me through the psychology, the psychology of that. Do you take your temperature? Do you all of a sudden take your blood pressure to make sure that it's coming down? I mean, what, what do you do? Do you, you know, like I remember one time, you know, I did an event for a foundation and it was a firefighting event. And I was actually in this room it was filled with smoke and we had to kind of find our way using the right wall. You use your right hand and you kind of like go along the wall in order to find your way out of the room. And I started getting claustrophobic. And I remember, you know, it's kind of like an even keeled moment where you have to be balanced, right? That's why I have such a respect for, you know, firefighters and other people within law enforcement, because you come up against these situations where you have to be able to balance yourself out. And I just remember just looking on the ground and I saw some of the tiles and what I needed to do, I counted each and every one of the tiles in order to bring my, 
my temperature back down in order to bring my panic down. So how, how do you mentally do that? I know your coach talked to you about being that way, but how do you mentally do that, especially in a business-like yeah. situation? No, I, I, you know what, it, it's, it's, I don't think that there's a business solution to it. I think that there's, you know, a lot of people meditate. You know, I do take the time. I, I, you know, I, I use prayer for me. Before I turn on the computer in the morning in my office, you know, I get through a couple of different prayers just to prepare me for the day. I pray for health, pray for my family, mm. pray for wisdom to be able to deal with situations that I may encounter that day. And so that's really helped me. And, and I was talking to a young intern earlier today and he asked me like, you know, how did you get to where you are? And I remember my mom and my grandma taking me to church every Sunday and, you know, from Sunday school to missionary Baptist church, you know, you're in church like for five, six hours <laughs> and they're cutting into my playtime. <laughs> so I didn't appreciate the level of what they were trying to accomplish at that time. And it, it probably took some time, you know, and so I became probably a early adult because before I realized the power of a connection with God. And, and that helps me out today. You know, I pray for things that have manifested themselves, both in a professional standpoint and from a personal standpoint. And I would also say having six daughters, I've learned to be able to be a good listener <laughs> because they don't want you to solve problems. They just want you to listen to the problem. So that's helped me out as well. <laughs> That's a lot of people listen to, especially in, in one house. And I, and I know your, your daughters are incredibly successful in all the things that they do. And they appreciate the wisdom that you impart upon them and the gifts that you've bestowed because of not only what you're doing now, but also your, your past experiences. And, and on this podcast, you know, we talk a lot about what it, what it means to have a deal-making mindset. And that, and that can kind of form itself in, in a lot of different ways and where that comes from. What do you think are some of the key features and benefits are operating in this frame of mind. And, and, and specifically, like, how do you remain passionate about it, especially over the tenure of your career? Yeah, I, I would share with you, I think it's important, you know, I, I, I think about my career in chapters. And, you know, after, after trying to pursue a professional football career, you know, I started in public accounting. I knew I needed to get my CPA to be able to allow me a platform to be able to move forward. From there, you know, I worked at a company where I was uh, director of internal audit. And people hear internal audit and they think, oh my gosh, that's got to be the boringest job in the world. I had so much fun in that job. I traveled all around the world on somebody else's dime. You know, I'm in Rio de Janeiro. I'm in Caracas. I'm in, you know, Barcelona. I'm in Paris, you know. So it was a fun job and it opens up your aptitude. And so when I think about the different chapters in life, they're all kind of stair steps in getting to where you want to be. And I used to always, I, probably up until my late 30s, early 40s, I would always say, what do I want to be when I grow up? Because I think it's an ever-evolving process. And through those experiences get, have given me the opportunity to have increasing levels of responsibility, whether it be managing people. But I would go back and say, before you can manage anyone, you have to be a good manager of yourself. And that means, you know, are you accountable to yourself? Are you waking up? Are you accountable to others? Are you on time? Are you punctual? Are you, are you actually committed and, and contributing to the conversations that you're involved in versus sitting in a room and not saying nothing? So along the way, you find your voice. And you know I've been fortunate enough to be able to grow into a position where I really try to exercise my voice 
not just because I want to, but because I want to help others. And again, you look at the different chapters of your life. I, I would share with you, Dahani, and you and I may have talked about this before, but you know, I read a book called Halftime, and it's a book about having personal and professional success, but you get into the midpoint of your life and you talk about what is personal significance all about. And for me, how I spend my time away from my family is all about personal significance. What can I give back to my family? What can I sow into others? And more importantly, what can I sow into society? So you have those chapters in life that you're able to build upon. Mm. Dang. You just gave me like 25 different nuggets in order to kind of just like talk about. But the thing I keep coming back to is, you know, anybody that's an internal audit, I think you had a good time because everybody was afraid of you. That's what I think. No, <laughs> not Because everybody's trying to figure out, hey, I want to make sure I had all my T's crossed and my I's dotted <laughs> make sure my numbers are right. Because I know you're a numbers guy and, you know, you don't want anybody to mess up with those numbers because Victor's going to find it. Well, here's what I would tell you about being an auditor. If, if you're not doing your job, you're not, you got to find something. You know, you got to find something. Don't don't come to me. I didn't find anything. You got to find something. You, you know, I, I talk about auditors. You have to justify your existence as an auditor. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, especially with, with your household, I mean, justifying, you know, those numbers, because there's probably a, a lot of things that are that are going on there just the same. And it's uh, and managing that in and of itself it has its amazing amazing opportunities to learn not only about yourself, but also about your family. But what, what, when you're approaching major decisions, whether it be, you know, you're in Caracas, you know, you're in Bogota, you might be traveling around the world, you know, about paths forwards in any given situation, are there like tips and, and tricks and techniques that you employ to get yourself in, the, in that right, like right frame of mind? Yeah. You know, I, I think one is, it's really important to, you talk about being overprepared. And as, as an athlete, you can appreciate this. I would go into a game in college and, you know, whether we were playing Clemson down at Clemson or, you know, Penn State at Penn State, and people will come up to you like, you know, two or three days before the game. Hey, hi, are you guys ready to play? And I would always say, I'll let you know after the game. And I think I, what I meant by that was that I'm going to do everything I can prepare but in the moment of the game, you know, they're going to be twists and turns. There's, there's corrections that you make. You go in at halftime. And, 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 and again, football, basketball, baseball, it's just like corporate America. You have to pivot. You might go in and say, hey, they're running this play. They're looking at a different angle. So how do you respond to that? So your ability to understand the different contingencies that they may take on or they may switch up a play. You know, they may send somebody else in motion. And that's the same thing in business. And so I think being prepared, you know, back in the day, you know this, we're, we're watching film all day. Mm -hmm. We're trying to understand the tendencies. So you, you got to understand your competitors or, you know, your rivals' tendencies, how have they done different deals in the business world. But in football, how they run this play? They probably run it out of three or four different formations. So you have to familiar yourself with that so that you're prepared for the different changes that may take place. So I always tell people... I will let you know how we did at the end of the game because I've tried to do all the preparation that I can do, whether it be financial, whether it be looking at historical performance of a particular company, understanding the business case that's been put in front of me. And the other thing that you have to do is making sure that your team is ready as well. 
you know, taking advantage of their points of view. I've always been a leader that a collaborative leader, and that, that, that probably comes from playing team sports all my life. It's important that everybody plays their role. Like the folks that report to me, they're president, they're, you know, senior vice president, executive vice president. I expect them to have an opinion around things and I want to hear their opinions. And it's the same thing as a team. If you're seeing something like one of my cornerbacks is seeing somebody run a pattern in a certain way, let me know if he's cutting so I can break a certain way. That's what it's about. But you can take what you learn from sports and it absolutely applies. And I would say even in, in going from Detroit to Boston, talk about a cultural change. And that's what you deal with even in the corporate world. You go through some cultural changes, especially as we become a more global economy. You're dealing with a lot of different cultures. So your ability to navigate those, I call it, you know, what's your dexterity in being able to deal with others? That is critically important. Mm. So those are, you know, those are the things that I would tell you are that I use as a leader and prepare myself, whether it be for a deal or a decision. And, you know, again, I, I go back to prayer, man. I, I use a little bit of that, too. That helps out. And look, God is God is good and, and God is there for you. You know, I always tell people, they always ask me if I'm ready for a game. And I would say, I'm born ready. You know, so I'm gonna start, I'm gonna start using that one. I'll tell you after the game. But you know, to be honest, when I when I go into when when I go into a game, I think just like you do, right? You you gotta be able to think on your feet. And and being a middle linebacker, you have to be able to see all the angles. You have to be able to know where things are were coming from. And you know, the way that I played the game, I knew I wasn't the best player on the field. I knew I wasn't sort of like I You're a pretty it, good player. Come on, don't, don't I, mean, I was good. Short. I was good, but I'm, I'm telling <laughs> the truth. Like I wasn't the the white collar top top player. I, I felt like I was a blue collar player, right? I was yeah. a blue collar player, and the way that I played the game was not only sort of. I brought my hard hat every day. I brought my hammer every day. You know, I I bought my tool my tool belt. My, my tool belt was my relationship, like you're talking about, with the other players and understanding the things that they needed to do so that I always remembered so what I needed to do with them. But then I also wanted to make sure that I had more information, that I was overprepared so that in moments of stress or in moments of challenge, being even keeled and being able to be looked upon as someone that can give them the information they need to be successful. And that's kind of how I, how I played the game. And so... I think I was I was born ready, but I was also at the same time looking forward to those pivots because that's where the blue collar nature in me became white collar and I shined. And I think in in the world of business, like you're talking about from an international perspective, having varying points of view, but that's so hard, Victor. So many people have have a hard time listening to other people and their points of view. Do you find that challenging sometimes when so many people give you so many different ideas and you know you don't necessarily know who's to take or do you kind of take everybody's and then kind of distill it into one idea which would be your own? Well, you you and I talking, let's be candid. You build a filter and you know, you can understand whether or not a filter is coming something getting through your filter or something's getting caught in your filter. And the stuff that's getting caught in your filter, you may have heard before, you don't, don't necessarily agree with it. And so I think it's important to have that mental filter, intellectual filter, financial filter, operational filter relative to what may or may not be appropriate. And, and again, you know, I've, I've had the benefit of being in the workplace over 40 years. And so, you know, my filter is pretty, pretty well tuned at this point relative to what you hear and what you don't hear. But to your point earlier, you know, you talk about, my, I was talking about one of my older daughters 
And she said, you got to stay ready so you never have to get ready. Mm. And, and I think that's important, too. Always stay ready. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Always be ready. Always be on. And, and like my father always talks about, you know, you never know who's watching you. Right? He always talked about this fishbowl of life. You know, you can kind of wander around, but you never know who's on the outside watching you. And you need to be prepared for whatever those moments might be, because those are the life-changing moments that you kind of await in, in your life. And you need to always be prepared. So like as, you know, throughout your career, you know, you, you've been so many places, you've been involved, I'm, I'm sure, in so many major deals. Are there any in particular that had a major impact on you, right? Shaping how you think about business, right? Was there, was there a time, was there a conversation, was there a transaction that basically just shaped the way that you think in the world of business? Yeah, I, I can share one with you. Probably back in, what, 2000, I came to work for Marriott International leading their food distribution business, about a, you know, almost a $2 billion business. I was running it for about two years. And you know we were having a C-suite meeting. And I'm sitting there and Mr. Marriott gets around to me and he says, um, he says, Victor, how are things going? So I do a report out on the financials. And he says, what's your observations around the business? Mm. And I said, can I be candid? And he said, absolutely. I said, I don't understand why we own this business. And he said, okay. Talk to me a little bit more. I said, I said, well, I think our core competency is in the hospitality space. While we support this particular hospitality business, there are others that are more equipped to do it better than we are. And given the investments that that's required to put into this business, I think we should look at a potential strategic disposition of this business. <laughs> he stood up and said, I agree with you. And I talked myself out of a job in like two minutes. <laughs> So uh, I would just share with you, um, we went through a process of first looking at whether or not the business was appropriate to take out to private equity, you know, as a spin out. And, you know, we spent some time evaluating that with some of the, you know, world renowned private equity firms. One of the issues we ran into was our customer. We had customer contracts. We had customer contracts with large restaurant chains, Mm -hmm. along with our Marriott hotels. And we needed them to sign off on the deal to give us their ability to transfer their contracts. But if I were in their shoes, I would have taken the opportunity to go out to the marketplace and see if I could get a better deal. So unfortunately, we, we ended up going through a strategic disposition where we sold off a lot of the assets. Unfortunately, we, we did have to displace a lot of employees. And, and that, that was the most difficult part of that transaction for me, having to displace employees, people's way of life. And then, you know, as a corporate executive, those are decisions that you unfortunately have to make if it's the right decision. But at the end of the day, it's still, for me, it was, it was a pretty emotional decision, but we got through that. We were able to get rid of the assets and, and recoup some money from Marriott and we moved on. And I, you know, I moved over to the lodging group with Marriott. So I was fortunate enough that while I talked myself out of a job, I actually found another career on the hospitality side with Marriott. So that was probably one of the more life-changing decisions because that, that was, a, it was, you know, when you talk about taking down a billion-dollar company and taking it out of company, that's, it, 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 it takes a lot of work, a lot of hard work, a lot of hours, a lot of negotiation, you know, a lot of deal-making. So I, I would tell you that particular experience was probably one of the better experiences I've ever had in my career. 
Now, you don't want to have to go through that more than once, I would hope, but it was a, it, it was a life-changing ex- professional experience for me, just given the multitude of activities, financial, legal, human resource, operational that had mm. to take place. Mm. You had yeah. to be a little bit scared when Mr. Marriott stood up. No, he's actually a really nice guy. I still see him to this day. He's he, he's he's still mad at me for going back to Pepsi, but you know, I hopefully he's over it. You know, he's but got some, a big M on the top of the building. It's not a C. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's just some of those moments, and it goes back to the always being prepared. I mean, if you weren't prepared in that moment when he would have asked you that question, you might have fumbled around and maybe not made the point and not saved them money and talked yourself out of a job. But I think that was a critical juncture of which put you on this on this path where people trusted your opinion, trusted your perspective because of the fact that you had assessed all of the essential angles. And that, you know, translates coming back from, you know, football, comes back from basketball, seeing things on the field before other people see it. But what about what about failures during your, you know, deal-making career? Anything in particular stand out? And what lessons, you know, you can learn from a good thing, but most importantly, it's good to learn from unfortunate situations as well. Yeah. You know, I, I look at the Merida experience not as a failure, but an opportunity to improve shareholder return. You know, as I look at, you know, some of my previous, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to be in some industries that have continued to grow. Now, you talk about failure. I, I can give you one. So I'm the general manager of Southern Ohio, Northern Kentucky for Pepsi. And at the time we said, hey, look, we want to try and test a new two liter bottle. And it was called the Grip. And it was a great, great looking bottle, but the stability of the bottle was somewhat challenging because it was a two-piece bottle that was molded. And so anytime you put carbonation into a two-piece bottle that's molded, if the carbonate, if there's too much carbonation, you may have some explosive events. Mm-hmm. And so we were rolling this um, two-liter bottle out in Dayton, Ohio. And I remember sitting in my office. And I get a phone call from a CVS manager, and he says, you need to get over here right now. Your display is exploding. I said, exploding? He says, it's exploding. So, <laughs> so I get in my car, I drive over to the CVS, and literally, they had had a two-liter display with our new grip bottles. And, and again, the bottles, you, you know, if you pick up a, a two-liter bottle today, they're the same bottles that they've had for years. Mm-hmm. Coke has done a little bit different contour with their bottle, but Pepsi's is pretty much the same thing. But we tried a new bottle. But unfortunately, this bottle, the display was, it was summertime. They had the display in the window. And as the carbonation and the stability of the bottle got impacted, it exploded and it exploded all over the card section, you know, the holiday cards, the happy birthday cards. So the whole section had Pepsi all over. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it was unfortunately a failure you know, from a marketing perspective, but it was a good, you know, we were trying innovation. And I think I would just say, you're not going to advance if you don't innovate. And so we were trying to innovate and it just didn't work out. And unfortunately it was in my market. So that was probably one of the biggest failures that I've been involved in. But on the other side, you know, you have Sierra Mist that's made by Pepsi today. I helped roll out that product in Chicago. And so it was Sierra Miss, and now it's just Miss. So you know, I've been on I've been on both sides of that continuum. I've been on some. Oh well, I got another one. 
I don't know if people, you know, people that may be listening here may be too young to remember Crystal Pepsi. Mm. We went through a point in time where we thought that we could have a Pepsi that was clear, that would be attractive to the consumers. I can remember we had Crystal Pepsi Day, and we went out and we flooded the stores with Crystal Pepsi. I would tell you a month later, we picked up all the Crystal Pepsi. <laughs> so that was a... Probably another another failure that I was involved in, but you know, again, I, I think it's you. You have to you got to innovate to advance, and you got to try some things. You got to throw some things against the wall and see if they stick or not. So there have been a couple couple failures, and then you know, I, I would say even from a career perspective, I had a job that didn't work out for me, and you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to move into another role. But you know, I, I think you try some things and. Um, you know, you continue to move on. It's just like if I miss a tackle, hopefully you don't miss it again. The Pathfinders podcast is presented to you by Ansarada. Ansarada is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A, capital raising, divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Ansarada has just launched Freemium with the world's first online data room quote. Now you can get a free data room and quote in just three clicks and just 15 seconds. There's no need to wait. Get your room open straight away, no matter what stage you're at. Deal marketing, deal preparation, or due diligence. And here's the best bit. Usage fees only start when the deal goes live. All the top M&A firms and investment banks are jumping on it. That's because there is no risk, just reward. Pretty cool, right? Check it out at nserata.com slash quote. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me. nserata.com for your next winning outcome. You said something interesting when you were talking about, uh, I think it was talking about Crystal Pepsi. And I don't know if I ever tried that, but I think you all should actually use that exploding Pepsi moment as like a marketing stunt of something. Like Pepsi, we're everywhere. You know, we're on your, we're on your greeting cards. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, on, we're on your towel paper before you even get to it. And it was something like that. I think that would be, I think that would be fun. But in, in the case of ad- advancement, because you know, I'm I'm thinking about your just your background, your career, right? So, you know, you have Marriott, you have Aramark, PepsiCo. I mean, these are during some really unique years that are much different than where we are today, right? And you think about the C-suite of which you sat next to Bill and Marriott, and as an African American man, as a black man, I'm thinking there couldn't have been that many people, much like yourself sitting in those rooms. And so I'm just replaying our entire conversation, thinking to myself, wow, you might have had to do all this strategy and put forth these thoughts by yourself and keep an even keel at the same time. Like everything, I mean, how, how did you work your way through that? And, you know, how do you think about you know, our country's history has always, you know, been a little bit struggled to, to gain that equality. And now you sit in the healthcare industry. What are your thoughts on the progress that and the things that still need to be done with, re, you know, regards to ensuring equal access and in, inequality, in, in if you will? And how did you do that along your way? And how did that impact where you are today? Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll go back to a comment that I made earlier about, you know, just finding your voice to your point. Honey, um, most of the time, I'm the only African-American sitting in the room. And, mm. and even to this day, 
and unless but we we do you know cardinal has some african-american board members but i'm typically the only one in the room the good news is is that we've made some progress you know i would tell you when i was at pepsico we were really committed to diversity and inclusion so the d and the i piece you know what's really started to manifest itself is d e and i the whole equity piece and i would share with you i think the work that we're doing at Cardinal is somewhat groundbreaking. And the challenge becomes, we took both our planes and went down to Montgomery, Alabama. And for those that don't know Montgomery, Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama was really the Wall Street of slave trading back in the day. So most slaves came into Montgomery and then were shepherded out to different parts of the country. But that was that was the Wall Street of slave trading. There is a the Justice Initiative down there. There is a memorial to terror lynchings where there's been over, you know, 3,000 terror lynchings. And you talk about a, a emotional moment. So for every state, every county and every state that they could identify a terror lynching, that person's name is listed on a memorial. I got to West Point, Mississippi, Clay County. I'm looking, I see four Crawfords that were hung on October 17, 1938. I didn't say 1838. I said 1938. Four, four Crawfords. I'm still trying to investigate whether or not they are relatives or not, but we had other members of our team, and we took our diversity council down there along with our C-suite, and we all experienced that together. And so I think it's really illuminated just the challenges that historically we have and historically we continue to continue to have. Again, growing up in Detroit, Michigan, I was in Detroit when we had the civil race rides. I remember seeing the National Guard and the Army tanks rolling down the streets of Detroit, Michigan. I'm a, you know, I'm probably a six or seven-year-old kid seeing helicopters fly by your house. And here we are in 2022. And I feel like that we are we're going backwards versus forward, just given some of the political, racial divide that we continue to have. And I just think even during the pandemic, what really concerned me was that it, you know, probably allowed people to, if, you know, versus coming to work and being around others and people of different ethnicities, gender, people were able to stay at home. And whether you're watching CNN or Fox and you know, that's what you're taking in all day. And so I, I, I got really concerned about this period of time that we've been in. And I, you know, while I know we're going back to a more hybrid working environment, mm-hmm. I really wish the, the reason why I want people back in the office so they can interact with one another, mm. because the only way you get a chance to be exposed to others is by interacting with them. But if you stay in your own bubble, there's, there's no, there's little to no opportunity to interact. Again, being a kid from Detroit, Michigan, going to Boston College, one of my best friends was from Portland, Maine. He never had a black friend. Mm-hmm. But him and I were best of friends. And we were, you know, we're, we're both county majors. And I'm still friends with his family to this day. But just having exposure is really, really important. That's the only way we're going to find a way forward here. Mm-hmm. And especially when you sit in the room and you 
increasingly more and more, you know, watch the shows and then you go on your phone and you watch more content, that content just feeds more and more content and and just serves the same sort of thought thinking over and over. And if you are not able to get out to your point, you can't diversify the way that you're thinking. You can't see the other angles and see the other perspectives in the same spot. You're not traveling like you did, you know, when you were growing up and meeting different people and gaining understanding of like the greater part of the world. And and I and I think that's that's one of the most important Important things that we we have to do. So, I don't know what's going to happen with the with the with the workplace, but I I hope people, to your point, are able to go back into the office and really spend time and really get to know people and gain gain that perspective. I'm curious when when you all went down to Montgomery, Alabama, what, what was the interaction like with the team? You know, was there any anything in particular that or a dynamic that changed? What was the what was the temperament in the conversation? Yeah, I, I would share with you. I think, you know, the good news is we we toured the memorial first. So, you know, it was an outdoor memorial, you know, several acres that you can walk around, you know, they've got statues depicting slaves and chains, and and then you walk through the memorial and you see, and then they have different stories about a kid that had a murmuring issue that someone thought that he whistled at a white woman. And they end up hanging this kid, but he just had a, he had a, a, a murmuring issue, you know? So di- different stories about how people got lynched and why they got lynched. They shot this man over three, like they hung him. Then they shot him over 300 times. Mm. Come on. That, that, that's, that's beyond cruelty. And so I think it was a, it was a time for reflection. And quite frankly, even being a person that thought I knew a lot about African-American history, I learned so much more that day. And at the end of the day, before we got back on the planes to fly back to Columbus, we all sat in the room and talked about our feelings and, and just had a really open conversation about how we were feeling, what we were feeling. There was anger. There was acknowledgement of, gosh, I didn't, I, I didn't realize, you know, with, with some of our counterparts, I didn't realize this was going on because they never talked about it in, you know, from, from educational, it's not in the school books. They, this is something that got whitewashed out of the educational process, but it is a part of American history. And, you know, we've just had folks that have chosen not to acknowledge it. And, and I think there's still folks that choose not to acknowledge it. But it is a huge part of American history. Just think of think about half a million workers mm-hmm. that are working for free. Okay, that would never happen in today's society. Okay, someone and some people have benefited from that free labor. Mm-hmm. There are a number of people that have benefited from that free labor, and are probably still benefiting from that free labor. So I think, again, there was just a multitude of emotions. I I would share any emotion that you can describe was probably displayed in that room before we got back on that plane. But as an outcome of that, our CEO, uh, Mike Kaufman, and I applaud what he did here, he established an African-American and Black cabinet. And these are his truth, you know, these are his truth tellers. So when, you know, we talk about what we want to do for the African-American community, 
not only within Cardinal Health, but also within the community of Columbus. And so, you know, we've got a group of vice presidents, senior vice presidents, African-Americans that meet periodically with Mike, with myself, with Ola Snow, our CHRO. And we have an outside consultant named Ron Parker, who I've known from Pepsi, who is a legend in this particular discipline around diversity, equity, inclusion. We've invested time, effort, and resources to ensure that we're trying to do the right things. But I would also share with you, it's, it's not without understanding, well, why are we doing this and not doing it for others? But again, you know, we've got a group that has been disenfranchised for a number of years, and it's really important that we exercise and deploy our resources to be able to try to move that needle a little bit forward. Mm, mm. And especially when it comes to um, quality of healthcare. Yeah. Because uh, healthcare is not equal everywhere. No, 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 it is not. You, you can go, you can go by zip code. I've been in the industry for literally the past kind of eight years. And, and I, I would share with you one of the reasons why I came to the company is really because of the mission, because everything we do at the end of everything we do at Cardinal, there's someone's loved one, whether they need a medication, they may need insulin, they may be, they may be diabetic, they may need a continuous glucose monitor, or is someone in the hospital that's going through a hospital stay, you know, so what can we do to help improve that? So we always talk about, you know, our model is that we're essential to care. You know, we may not be the doctor, but we're helping the doctor and the nurses assist in getting that patient back to hopefully health. It's important. You know, like I said, for me, it's about how do you turn personal, professional success into personal significance? And it's how you associate with yourself and how you spend your time outside of your, your home. Mm-hmm. It's mm. powerful, powerful. And I know you, not only the efforts that you're working on through and with Cardinal Healthcare are significant, but then you're also, you know, the board of the National Urban League. How has your career affected or been affected, if you will, by your experience in being a part of the National Urban League? And, you know, as we think about, you know, civil rights, when we think about equality, how does the National Urban League experience and those that you sit with influence sort of the, the work that you do. Yeah, I think it's important for most corporations to be able to support organizations like the National Urban League. They, they've been around, they've got a rich history. And the, the one thing about the National Urban League, I think you know, the contrast between them and probably the NAACP is that the NAACP is definitely more civil rights driven. Urban League is definitely civil rights driven, but also they're all about economic empowerment. Economic empowerment. And so all of our chapters that are out there, they're working hard in their communities, trying to drive economic empowerment, jobs, whether you, you know, you've been incarcerated, how do we return you into the society? How do we ensure equal health care? How do we have affordable housing? They work directly from a policy perspective. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be the chairman of the Program Policy and Communication Committee of the National Urban League. And these folks are doing yeoman's work each and every day, talking to their Congress, trying to get allotments, trying to get funding for different programs that help our communities. And so, again, it, it, it's how you spend your time away from work, you know, or away from your family. 
the National Urban League. They have a mission that I absolutely believe behind. And so, you know, it's important for me to be able to associate myself with things that I absolutely believe in, that I can absolutely be committed to as an individual. And they fit that that marker. Plus, it, it, it's also an opportunity for need to allow Cardinal to participate from a financial perspective. And so the, we can't, we cannot do this without the help of corporate America, the government, you know, obviously they have different programming funding that we can go after, but it's through our the private public partnerships that we can continue to move this forward. Mm. And, and you talk about that. Cause I've, uh, I read some of your articles, Victor, by the way, you, you you write pretty well. You could you could actually have a, a well, feature. I got a, I got a really a good communication. I, I have a really good communication <laughs> team. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. But one of the things you talk about is a uh, you know in creating change and moving moving things forward and, and step by critical step. And the one thing you, you pointed out, which was really really stood out to me, was this methodical manner. And I could just what's this? What's the recipe of of the methodical? manner that that you that you speak about and the step by critical step to creating change yeah you know what I, i've always it, it was funny i remember my dad always telling me that if you don't have a plan to succeed then you got a plan to fail mm. and so i think it's really important that you think about the steps that you have to take to get to your ultimate goal and some of those are going to be time bound some may, may be restricted by financial resources and how you can deploy them to get to where you want to be. And it's it's similar it's similar to business. So if I got a business case, if I think it's going to deliver X amount of return, I may invest a lot more upfront to get to that return mm-hmm. sooner. Mm-hmm. But there may be some projects that may be a little bit longer term that you have to be a little bit more methodical about how you invest in, you know, not only time, strategy, human resources to get to your ultimate goal. And so I, that's kind of how I think about it. And I, I don't think it's it's much more, to, you know, uh, it's it's very similar to how you look at business opportunities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'd like to employ a, a more methodical way of, of doing things. Sometimes, you know, like, like I said, as a as a linebacker, you see the angles and you, you make your moves and you make your pivots. But, you know, as I think as I get older, I'm going to learn how to be more smooth like Victor Crawford and be a little bit more methodical. No, you, you know what? It's, it's about, you know, they talk about the, the attack angles. Yes. You know, you got to just work, work on your attack angles. They, they change over time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I remember seeing a couple quarterbacks get out of the backfield. I can't take the same angle that I did before. I got to take a little bit more yeah. of a wide angle as I get older. Absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, you, you will. You want to catch up with them. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the, you know, as we're, we're coming to a close, I, I, I didn't want to leave without talking about the great work that you're doing with Pelotonia. In Columbus, Ohio, which is hard for me as, as a Michigan grad to, to talk about <laughs> all the great things that you all are, are, are doing, I have to bring it up because it really has created an incredible movement. And the movement that you've incited by, you know, just being a part of it is a game changer. Why is this work so important to you personally? Yeah, this gets personal. You know, I'm a cancer survivor. So, you know, having the opportunity, I had a chance to talk. Doug came and spoke at one of our events at Cardinal Health. And afterwards, I said, I got to go and introduce myself to him. Mm. And I went up to him and introduced myself. And you, you, obviously, you know Doug really good. We went up and we had a really good conversation. I just said, hey, I'm a survivor too. And... We just start talking and we start talking about different people that we knew. 
So there's a doctor up in Philadelphia, Chris Dodson, who's an unbelievable orthopedic surgeon. He's the, he's the orthopedic surgeon for the Eagles and the Sixers. And I've seen him. My kids have seen him. Great, great guy who grew up with Doug. And obviously, you know Doug. And I, I met your dad before I knew you. So Doug and I just developed this relationship. And Cardinal had already had a relationship with Pelotonia. But mm-hmm. we didn't have someone sitting on the board. And when they came to me and asked me to sit on the board, I was absolutely honored. So I sit on a couple of, you know, you mentioned the National Urban League, obviously very mission-driven. Pelotonia, very mission-driven. Unfortunately, I don't ride. I'm a virtual rider. I got a bad knee. So, you know, I'm I'm rooting for everybody from the sideline. We're going to have to get that knee fixed so you can ride, too. That that nice 180 miles, I need you to be a part of it. uh, One one of these days. (laughs) And so Pelotonia, very mission-driven. The work that they're doing with the Ohio State University, since they've they, they've trademarked the, I'm, I'm still trying to figure that one out, but you know, so I just yeah. main tight lip with that. <laughs> I understand. Come on, I, I paid tuition to Michigan, so I'm I'm good, and I'm I'm a Detroit guy, so I'm a Michigan fan. The, the work they're doing at the James Center in terms of cancer research is game changing. Mm-hmm. Again, this is something that's really really close to me, and then I sit on the Hershey board. And hopefully what people don't know is that 70% of Hershey is owned by the Milton Hershey Trust, which goes to support the Milton Hershey School. You know, it started out being a school for wayward kids or orphans, but it's evolved. And again, it's an opportunity to give back. And so I think we all get to a point in life where life has given us a lot. And I'm blessed to have had a lot of great experiences in life. But I think it's also, you know, as we think about the you know, second half of life, how do we give back? And and that's where Pelotonia comes in. That's where the Hershey board comes in. That's where the National Urban League comes in for me. Mm. And Doug Ullman, um, the CEO of Pelotonia, is, is a good friend and, is, and has, has taught me a, a myriad of things as well. And so I'm just excited that you're, you're doing so much work with them. I do wish one day that you get on that bike and actually do the do the do well, the I ride. I do have a bike. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, imp- I think it's important. You can't just stay in your house all day. We talked about this. You got to get outside, Victor. Oh, okay, I do have a Peloton in the lower level that I do ride. We need to see you on the street. We need we need you to go the distance. I'll go the distance with you. I actually think it's safer riding in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. I'll protect you. I'll I'll I'll, I'll protect you. I'll make sure I pull you the in, the entire way, just like they did for me the first time that I that I did the Pelotonia Pelotonia ride. But I just want to say thank you for sharing so many of your um, amazing experiences. I want you uh, to thank you for sharing not your your upbringing and the relationship that you have with your your family and your daughters and all the great things that you have taught them all the things that you've taught people both on the field as well as off the field, and then all the people that you've taught in the C-suite being the only, sometimes the only African-American voice man in the room at the executive level. I mean, that is is powerful in and of itself. And as you continue to do so on the multiple boards that you are, including including Hershey and, and giving back and understanding sort of the, the power of that, I think that's incredibly important. So I appreciate that. What we always talk about at the end of, at, at, a, at the end of our podcast is we talk about these meals and deals. So I mean, maybe we're not talking about a meal and deal in this particular case, but tell us the story of, of your favorite moment or your celebratory meal, where where it happened, how it happened. I, I just, you know, of course, I, I like great places to eat, but 
I want to know about that one great moment, that meal, and, and that celebration, if you will, as we come to a close. You know, I, I have to tell you, it's probably once a year, and it's Thanksgiving. I get, I do the turkey. My wife is an unbelievable cook. And, you know, we got the candy yams, the collard greens, the macaroni yes, and cheese. I do, the, I do the dressing. I do a, a, a Italian sausage dressing. Got all the fixings. And being able to sit around the table with my family each and every year. And we make it a point to go around the table after, you know, between dessert and dinner to talk about what we're thankful for. So when you talk about celebratory meals, it's, it's not a business meal for me. It's, it's a family meal. And also, I, I have to tell you, so the, the, the lead up to that day, I, I have what I call my, my Hugh Hefner's Thanksgiving. So after I get up and cook, I go get showered, put my silk pajamas and my silk robe on, and I watch football <laughs> until it's time to get dinner. Like the first year I did it, I tried to come to the table with my my, my my silk pajamas and robe. My wife's like, you got to go get dressed. So, <laughs> so since then, I do go get dressed now in, in regular clothes. But that is my biggest um, celebratory meal of the year. <laughs> well, Victor Crawford, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the Pathfinders. Your invaluable knowledge, advice, and counsel uh, rings true in so many different ways. And I just want to say appreciate it and, and thank you so much for being on the show. All right, Tahani, thank you, man, for having me. A special thanks again to Victor Crawford for being with us today. It's really amazing to see the work he's doing in the healthcare industry and gain invaluable insights from his incredible wide range of career experiences, helping us to look at investing and deal-making from a whole new angle. If you're enjoying The Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find the show. Until next time, I'm Dahani Jones, and this has been The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. Ansarada.